The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 21 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord, your, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off, and Moses said, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Over the past several weeks, we've learned that the Ten Commandments, all of them, they have a positive side and they have a negative side. To say, do not commit adultery is also to say, husbands and wives must continually nurture their love for one another emotionally, spiritually, as well as sexually. This is a commandment regarding intimacy in marriage. Now, today we are often kind of pitted, uh, these two kind of faulty, these two faulty views of marriage are kind of pitted against each other in our culture. On the one hand, we have this kind of more postmodern view of marriage that is just all fireworks and romantic escapades, but it fizzles quickly and people move on to the next victim, right? It's hot, it's exciting, but it's short-lived. It's a flash in the pan and we move on to find the next person. But on the other hand, we have this more, I would just say kind of an old school picture of marriage that is committed and faithful, and yet dull and lifeless. This marriage knows how important marriage is. 
and wants to be faithful, if for nothing else than to create a good home for the kids. This marriage tends to be more like two business partners living together under one roof. It seems like our culture and many of us believes that you can either have passion or permanence, but you can't have both. And today we're going to see that God says that's wrong. God says there's another way. In fact, God says the only way to really have the intimacy that passion is supposed to produce is for it to be done inside of a committed, lifelong, and faithful marriage. That's the context where true lifelong intimacy can be developed. So, as I begin... This commandment this morning condemns adultery in all forms, but it also condemns lifeless, passionless, stale, business-like marriages as well. And it's my bet that your marriage is leaning in one of those directions. And it's my prayer for us today that God would do a work in your life and in your heart and in your marriage to cause it to live up to God's gracious and glorious design and expectations. I'm asking God to resurrect lifeless marriages and to deepen passionate marriages so they can last the long haul. If you're single, listen. You don't learn to swim the day you're drowning in the ocean, okay? It's a bad plan, right? Don't wait to learn about marriage until you get married, right? Let's do some work before that. And I pray this morning that you would see God's grand design for marriage. You would understand the purpose of intimacy. And maybe your idea, your concept, your vision of marriage would be changed and you'd begin working on yourself now to prepare you for the day that you are married. But for us to really understand just what is going on in this commandment this morning and why God considers adultery and intimacy such a big deal, we need to understand creation. See, when in Genesis 2... When God made man, one of the first things he said was that it was not good for man to be alone. Now, what does that mean? Man was always meant to be. He was created to be a relational being. We are created by a relational God. God exists in a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means at the center of the universe is a community, an intimate community, right? And so when God makes man in his image, he makes man dependent and needing intimacy and community and relationships. And so for us, in order for us to live full human lives, we need intimate relationships. We need them. But what God did next was a mystery. Instead of creating, so he made Adam, right? And Adam is lacking. Adam needs community. And surprisingly, God doesn't create like bros for Adam, right? He doesn't, you know what we need? We need a football team. That's what we need. He needs community. Give him a platoon. That's what he needs, right? He needs more bros, right? To run the garden with. No, that's not what God does. God knocks him out, 
God opens up his side, takes an intimate part of him, part of his side, and fashions a different word than, than created. He forms Eve. He forms this woman. So God's answer to man's relational need wasn't someone just like him. It was a diverse answer. It was someone different, someone like him and yet not like him. See, both man and woman are both made in the image of God, but they were created to complement one another in unique and special ways. And there in Genesis 2, God makes woman and then he escorts her down the aisle, if you will, in the first wedding ceremony. And he presents her to Adam, his wife. This is why the father presents the bride on the wedding day, walks her down the aisle and presents her who, uh, will, you know, who takes this man, right? Or who takes his daughter to be, I'm out of it today, guys. I'm gonna be honest. Who takes this woman, right? Or who gives away. And he, the father says, her mother and I give her away, right? <clears throat> and what does Adam do? That's cool, right? No, Adam responds appropriately with the first poetry ever spoken by the human language. He sees her, God brings her down the aisle, and he says, he'd been chilling with the animals, right? He's named all the animals, he's seen all the animals, and now all of a sudden one that's that's like him but not like him comes down the aisle, and he looks at her, and he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Poetry. And the woman said, ooh, I like this guy. (laughs) That's not there, but I imagine that happened. But then God said this, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The old version said he would leave and cleave. He would leave his home. He would leave his heritage. He would leave his family and he would cleave to this new woman. And God said, and they shall become leave, cleave, leave, hold fast. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, this all comes from the second chapter of Genesis. That's two pages into the Bible. And God has already created man and woman and the institution of marriage and sex without shame. Now, from this, we learn many things. I don't have time to go into them all today. You could spend a lifetime studying them, but here's a few things we learn right away. Marriage is meant to be the most intimate of all human relationships. But in order for this intimacy to happen, several things are needed. First, we see right away that God is at the center of Adam and Eve's relationship. When they are presented as husband and wife, God is the one performing the ceremony and presenting the bride. This is why you get married in a church, or this is why you get married with a pastor. This is why you, have, you make your vows, not just between you and, and your family and friends, or you and a justice of the peace, but you and God. 
That God is the one bringing this marriage, these two people together. When they were presented as husband and wife, God is the one doing the work here. And this shows us that if we want our marriages to be all that they are meant to be, we must place God at the center of them. And next, we see that this relationship is more than just friends with benefits. Adam and Eve become husband and wife through a covenant of marriage. See, that word that we said that hold fast, leave your father and mother and hold fast to your wife or leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife, that word in the Hebrew is debak. And it literally means to be glued together. That a husband and a man and a woman in marriage, this covenant, it's gluing them together. It's bringing them together in in a committed, lifelong relationship. Marriage is meant to be an exclusive, lifelong, committed, faithful relationship between one man and one woman glued together for life. Now, why is that the case? Listen, the relationship between husband and wife is meant to be the most intimate human relationship in our life and in order for intimacy to take place. Listen, please hear this. In order for intimacy to take place, there must be stability, safety, honesty, vulnerability, and fidelity. True intimacy Bearing one soul to be known and to know another cannot happen if any of those are lacking. And the covenant of marriage, this glued union, is meant to create that type of environment. It's two people before God, standing before God saying, I am in this forever. I will stay committed to this thing no matter what. I will love you. I will be faithful to you. No matter how many pounds you put on. No matter how damaging gravity is to you over the long haul. I will be committed to you. I will love you. I will be faithful to you. I will not scan the horizon for you 2.0 down the line. I will be honest with you. I will be gentle towards you. I will be here, Lord willing, in 50 years through sickness and in health, good times and bad, richer or poorer, till death do us part. And it is only in this type this covenant, this type of safe and stable environment inside a covenant of marriage where sex does what it's supposed to do. And that is to create and maintain real intimacy at its basic, at its most basic level. Listen, sex is doing with your bodies what you have already done with every part of your life through marriage. 
In marriage, you're giving your soul. In marriage, you're giving your heart. In marriage, you're giving your mind. In marriage, you're giving your finances. In marriage, you're giving your home. In marriage, you're giving your side of the bed or whatever, right? In marriage, you're giving everything. You're taking everything in your life and you're putting it in the middle. And sex is doing with what you're doing with your body, what you've already done with the rest of your life. Two people becoming one. Now, listen, I realize that this view of intimacy is in stark contrast to the majority voices that we are hearing today. Many people think that intimacy is about two people feeling attracted to one another, hooking up or moving in together. They often say things like, I don't need a piece of paper to tell me who I love, or I don't need a piece of paper to tell somebody that I love them. I don't need this marriage thing. I can love somebody no matter what. I don't need this thing called marriage to love someone. More and more couples seem to be foregoing marriage altogether. Now, what most people fail to realize is that this line of thinking is completely based upon feelings. They're in essence saying, I don't need a covenant to create intimacy because right now I'm really into you. I'm turned on by you. I'm excited by you. You're interesting to me. I feel like being with you. I don't need a piece of paper. I don't need a covenant because my feelings are so powerful towards you. Now, I hope you can see the difference between that and covenant love that stands before God and says, no matter what comes, I'll be here. See, covenant love and feeling-based love are different. Covenant love says, no matter how I feel, I will love you. I will act loving towards you and trust that the feelings are going to ebb and flow throughout our life together. That at two in the morning when you're throwing up, I won't feel like cleaning it up. I won't feel like waking up with the kids. I won't feel like, but love does these things because that's what love, love acts and trust that the feelings are going to come later. Love loves. But feeling-based love gives no stability. The most anxious people in the world are those who are operating out of feeling-based love. Because it says this, I will love you and I will be with you as long as I feel in love with you. As long as you make me happy. As long as the sex is still interesting. As long as my feelings are being met, I will love you. This form of love is entirely selfish and based upon me getting my needs met. See, and covenant love is love based in one's love for God and the other person. Feeling-based love is based in my love for myself. Feeling-based love doesn't last when the partner's on the deathbed. Feeling-based love doesn't last when work gets stressful and things get monotonous and the kids, get pre- and the kids issues get pressing. Covenant love lasts during those times. If you are operating with the wrong view of love, what happens 
when the feelings wear off. Now listen, if you're just married, <laughs> you're like, feelings wear off? Not us. Match.com said, we're soulmates. We're in this forever, right? I got, we got a 90% score on farmersonly.com. This is for sure. This is forever. This is for life. Feelings are all over the place. We're, what are you talking? I guarantee you feelings ebb and flow. It will wear off eventually. It will cool down. Now listen, what happens when your feelings aren't getting met? When you're feeling, when you're not feeling the feels, what happens? Here's what happens. You back off. <clears throat> you stop investing. Think of it. You see this marriage as a stock and it's not returning. So you pull your money out. You stop investing in it. I'm just going to see if this thing responds to the market. I'm going to see if this thing, you know, maybe it starts, you know, giving me some good income and then I'll put some money back into it and then I'll invest in it. But right now I'm going to cool off right now. I'm going to back away. You stop acting loving towards the other person. No, I can't do that. No, I can't pick that up for you. I'm busy. I have work. Right? You stop giving. You stop laying your life down. You get cold and distant. Stop going, start going to bed at different times. Start spending more time out of the house, at work, with friends. You get distant and you start scanning the field for someone new to meet your needs. This person's really into me. This person knows what I'm worth. This person tells me how good I am and sees the good in me and wants, to be, wants me to be better. This person's more for me. See, love as a feeling is entirely self-centered and therefore it can never create a stable marriage. It's impossible. But the biblical definition of love says, listen to this. You are actually being more loving towards a person when you are acting loving, kind, and faithful when you don't feel like it. On the love-o-meter, you're being more loving when you don't feel like it, but you're behaving lovely towards a person. This is backwards. This isn't hypocr the hypocrisy. This isn't fake it till you make it. This is I'm loving someone and I'm going to trust that these weird things I have called feelings, right? These things that get, for me, they get excited about queso dip, right? Like, ooh, queso. And I'm, ooh, I'm excited, right? Ooh, like don't trust the feelings. Don't trust your marriage to your feelings. Don't trust your home to your feelings. Trust is a covenant love. As human beings, now listen, this is what, this is why we need this covenant. As human beings, we need this type of stability in our most intimate relationship. We need to know that the other person can see our crazy. They can handle our sin. They can absorb our wrath in a sense they can see even our wounds and still love us. And that's why I said feeling-based love, it creates anxiety. You're always performing. You can never show on anyone your deep wounds. Listen, most of us are jacked up from our parenting, from our child, you know, our home of origin, right? 
We, we were shaped by that. We were shaped by a father leaving. We were shaped by abuse. We were shaped by negligence. We were shaped by idolatry that mom or dad said you had to be successful or you had to make money or you had to be the best in this. And we were driven, 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 driven. We've been damaged in some way. We've been wounded in some ways from our home, from our home life, from our upbringing. And we bring that into our marriages and our marriages need to be the safe space where we can kind of peel back the layers and go, I'm pretty jacked up and I need you to know that. And I need you to see that. And I need you to love me through that. And if it's feeling-based love, ooh, ooh, that's gross. I don't want to see that. Ooh, that's challenging. Ooh, I don't, I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to act like I didn't, that didn't happen. And that's not what intimacy was made for. That's not what the union of marriage was made for. And so the covenant of marriage is covenant, it's commitment. It's meant to be the bedrock upon which we build our most intimate relationship. This is the place where I can let down my defenses and be truly known. And I can do the hard work over a lifetime of truly knowing another person, seeing their sinfulness and their glory and loving them for the rest of their lives. It said that when uh, Michelangelo was making his statue of David out of, I think it's marble or granite, I can't remember. They asked him how he did it. And he went through hundreds or thousands of slabs. They'd bring him a slab and they'd bring him a slab and they'd bring him a slab and they'd bring him a slab. And he said, nope, 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 nope. And finally they brought him one. And they said, yes, that's it. Somehow he could see the statue of David in this slab. And that's kind of your, your spouse's future glory. You can kind of look at them and they might look like a slab. But you're like, I can see what God's wanting to do in them. I, can, I think I see a statue there. I see the glory there. And Michelangelo said this. They asked him, how did you do that? He said, I just chipped away everything that wasn't David. And that's what God is trying to do in your marriage and in our marriages. He's chipping away everything that's not your future you. He's chipping away everything that's not your new created you, the, the you that he wants you to become as we grow in him and become more and more like him, more and more sanctified. So it's upon this. Now listen, I could take this sermon a lot of different ways. And I'm just going to throw this one statement out there. Marriage is meant to be stable. It's meant to be safe. It's meant to be committed. It's meant to be covenantal. One of the repercussions of this is that marriage and the family is the first institution. It's the primary institution in society. Okay. It's the foundation upon which all of society in every nation and every, in every part of the world, their society is built on the family, on the marriage. As the marriage goes, so goes the family, so goes the church, so goes the school, so goes the marketplace, so goes the government. And this is one of the reasons why God says marriage is meant to be exclusive. It's the exclusive sexual relationship, that you cannot have sex with anyone other than your spouse ever to do so is adultery. The adultery is unfaithfulness to the covenant. It's breaking the bubble. It's breaking the glue. 
It's breaking trust. It's destroying intimacy. Listen, it throws a relationship into turmoil and sends the whole family into a tailspin. The majority of our cultural problems today come back to a breakdown in the family, a breakdown in the covenant of marriage. Most prominent person in our culture to live before, below the poverty line, single, unwed mother. Majority of our problems stem from unfaithfulness to the covenant of marriage. And listen, I heard it said, actually this last week, someone said to me, if you commit adultery and you ask for forgiveness, Jesus will forgive you. Your spouse might forgive you, but your kids probably won't forgive you. Adultery damages the family. It wounds the children. The children go out into the world wounded, broken, disillusioned, angry. And they enter into their relationships with this distrust, this fear of being known, this fear of being vulnerable. You know what? Maybe marriage didn't work for my parents. Maybe I should just forego it. Maybe I should just forget about it. And so we see so many young men and so many young women putting off marriage, putting off marriage, putting off marriage. We see the rise of this hookup culture. We see the rise of these apps that allow you uncommitted sexual relationships. Now listen, I just want us to think about this. These commandments, God is not looking down and going, I just want to make their life miserable. I'm so frustrated with them. How can I just, ooh, just really get them back? Right? Now here's one. You can only have sex with your spouse. That'll get them. God is not trying to limit our freedom and limit our joy. He's giving us these rails, right? These fences put around our most intimate relationship to guard us and to protect us and to maximize our joy and literally to keep us from hurting ourselves, from hurting our loved ones, from hurting our churches, from hurting our children and destroying our communities. Adultery causes harm. So many people tell me, what's wrong, Justin, if, if no one gets hurt? Well, you can say that about some things. You can't say that about adultery. In adultery, someone always gets hurt. It seems like our society has this fascination with adultery. It's not an exaggeration to say that nearly every single drama on TV or Netflix has someone committing adultery. Nearly every show. And nine times out of 10, it displays adultery as passionate and uncontrollable and just the total abandonment of oneself over to their feelings. Right? You got to live your best life now. You got to go after it. You got to, you know, oh, that looks so exciting. Jump in, take it, taste it, take the apple. 
right? But interesting, to me, most of these shows on television also show, maybe not in the same episode, but they also show the devastating consequences as well. They show the pain of the other person being betrayed. We have shows just built on revenge these days. They show the pain, the divorce, the problems at work that it causes. They show the relational turmoil as friends now have to choose sides. They show show the hurt and pain and anger that the children feel. The abandonment. Adultery destroys lives. So, if that's the case, if adultery really destroys society, and adultery really destroys family, and adultery destroys marriages, and it destroys unions, and it destroys intimacy, if adultery is so destructive, why do we do it? I can think of at least two reasons. First, not the most encouraging word from Jesus, we have lust in our hearts. That selfish, feeling-based love, there's a word for that. It's called lust. It's not love at all. Love is self-sacrificial. Lust says, you sacrifice for me. And Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 27 and 29, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus is quoting the seventh commandment right here. And then listen to what he says. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus doesn't go, you know what? Adultery, that's a really difficult one that God gave us. It's not really that big of a deal. Jesus will forgive you. Don't worry about it. Just try really hard. I mean, try your best. Don't go overboard or anything. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You've heard that it said, don't commit adultery. Where I say, don't commit adultery even in your heart. When you look at a woman or look at the opposite sex with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart. Now, I would probably guess that that means that everyone in this room is an adulterer. So since we're all guilty and we're all on the same playing field here, let me move on. I think Jesus, and listen, why do I want to do that? Why do I want to do that? I want to do that because there are people in this room who have committed adultery physically. There are people in this room who are doing it right now. There are people in this room who did it a long time ago and they realized it was the worst thing they ever did and it destroyed their life and it destroyed their marriage and it destroyed their soul and they're trying to recover from it. And you know what? There's people in this room who are doing it in their mind and they're playing it out and they're fantasizing about it and they're thinking about it and it's on the horizon for them. And even though in their heart they might say never, 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 if it's in your mind, it's just a couple steps away from being in your heart and being in your life. And so we need to hear Jesus saying, 
The seed of adultery is in your heart. It's called lust. And we need to know that and be aware of that so we can work and we can all say, you know what? We all need the grace of Jesus here. We don't sit back and go, "Mm, them adulterers destroying our nation, right? We need the wisdom of G.K. Chesterton when one newspaper wrote to him and said, what's wrong with the world? And he had a a two-word answer. He said, I am. What's he saying? Selfishness in my own heart. That's what's wrong with the world. That's what destroys families. That's what destroys communities. This is what destroys churches. It's in us. We all need the spirit of God to get in us and root out the seed of adultery, the seed of sin, the seed of selfishness. <clears throat> but I think, and I think, so how do we do that? Something practical. I think Jesus also gives us a very practical way and kind of a clue to how adultery begins. That adultery begins with a look. Nobody stumbles into it. It says if you've looked with lustful intent upon a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. It's important for us to see this. Some of us don't know how the pieces connect. We don't know how God made us as human beings and how we're this integrated being of body and soul and our body affects our soul, soul or spirit. Our body affects it. And so let me, let me just show this. This is, this is what happened. And, and actually the Puritans had a good word for this that it's kind of fallen out. We don't use this term anymore. But let me show you what happens with lust and with adultery it, hap- it starts in the eyes, okay? Or the ears. Let's just say the senses, okay? You can be listening to something. You can be, I mean, music. You can be looking at something. And then there's this thing that the Puritans called a fancy. A fancy, okay? Now, what this is, have you ever heard the term, well, that tickled my fancy. That tickled my, well, what is that? What's my fancy? <laughs> well, your fa- the fancy is something that you, you don't even know why. Okay? Now, I'm going to... Ha- You're driving down the road 45 miles an hour, and you glance and you do that. Without even... Like, there was no, like, cognitive, you know, you, in your brain... I have just registered something that, you know, like there was nothing like that going on. It was precognitive. Okay. You didn't think about it. You didn't lock onto it and think about it. You know what? I feel like I want to look at this with lustful intent. Right. It just was wow. wow. Guy, girl, whatever it is. It could be a facial feature. It could be a physical feature. It could, I don't, it could be nearly anything. And it just catches you. Now, I have a quote from a Puritan, John Flavel. And he says this, the fancy is a power of the soul placed between the senses and the understanding. Now I want you to see this. This is between the senses and the understanding. So the senses are what I see, what I feel, right? But the understanding is what I think about, what I lock on, my imagination, what I'm in control of. 
The fancy is a power of the soul placed between the senses and the understanding. It is which first stirs itself in the soul and by its stirring or by its motions, the other powers of the soul, mind, will, emotions are brought into exercise. It is that in which thoughts are first formed. This is tough. And as that is, so are they. So your fancy will determine your thinking. Your fancy will determine the other ways you use your soul, mind, will, and emotions. Your fancy determines those things. Next scripture, or next, not scripture, I'm sorry, quote. The fancy is naturally, that's without the spirit, naturally the wildest and most untamable power of the soul. Why do you like something? I don't know why I like it. I just like it. Why do you find that attractive? I don't know why I find it attractive. I know I want to be committed to my marriage. I don't want to commit adultery, but I just, I, it's hard for me not to look. It's hard for me not to go there. It's this idea of fancy. And it's fascinating that Fli- John, Jonathan Flavel says, we need to ask the spirit of God to, mor- to give us a mortified fancy. What does mortify mean? It means put it to death. We need this thing, this reflex, this lustful reflex to be put to death that's between our seeing and our thinking. But I want you to see that how connected these things are. So let me just kind of break it down. You see something, your fancy locks onto it and says, look at that thing. You pursue it, you look at it, then what happens? Then it comes into your mind and you begin to meditate on it. You begin to imagine it. You begin to fantasize about it. And then in your fantasy world, it drops down into your heart and you say, this is good. I deserve this thing. My marriage is cold. My marriage is lifeless. I deserve to treat myself well. I put in a lot of time over the years. Now it's my turn to be happy. And it gets down into your heart and out of the heart come the issues of life. And out of the heart, you've already thought about it. You've already imagined it. Your fancy's already been tickled and you are locked onto it. You're worshiping it in your heart and saying it's good. And then out of that, you do it. Out of that, you get on the website. Out of that, you sign up. Out of that, you talk to the secretary. Out of that, you step over the line. It doesn't just happen. Jesus knows what he's talking about. It started with the look, with lustful intent. That's where it started. This is why what we put into our brain should matter to us. What we watch end on end, show after show, should matter to us. You can't watch people committing adultery over and over and over and over and it not get into your fancy. You can't. Or the music you're listening to. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not like only Christian music and only get throw out your TV. I'm not saying all that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there should be a safeguard on your heart and a safeguard on your mind. And you should have some kind of thermometer of the soul that says, you know what? I'm feeling off. I'm feeling disconnected from the Lord. I'm feeling distant from Jesus. I'm thinking about lust a lot. I'm thinking about adultery a lot. I probably need to back away from these things for a while. See, this led Job, you know Job in the Bible. You might have thought his name was Job. Job said this. He says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a woman 
lustfully. He knew nobody falls into adultery. It takes work. It takes effort. It begins in the senses. It moves to the imagination. It settles in the heart. And then we choose it. We will for it to happen. What you watch, what you read, what you listen to will shape your imagination and your fantasies and that will work itself down into your heart which left unchecked will shape your decisions. But another reason people commit adultery is that adultery is easy. A few years ago my son got a, a rock tumbler. You know anything about a rock tumbler? It's this little globe. Put some rocks in there. Some, looks like gravel. Take some gravel. Throw some gravel in there. You pour a little sand in there. Turn that baby on. It annoys the whole house for about a week or so. Over and over and over. Now listen. Marriage, the covenant of marriage, is like a rock tumbler. The walls of that tumbler represent the covenant. Not getting out. And as these rocks tumble around inside and crash against one another, there's all this friction going on. Something almost magical happens. See, think about that. What happens? The, a month later, you pull this gravel out of this rock tumbler and you have these gems. You have these beautiful stones that the kids want to put in their pocket and the kids want to sit on their shelf. It went in gravel and it came out glorious. Something magical happens in this rock tumbler. But let's just be real. Oh, you know what happens inside that rock tumbler? A whole lot of conflict. That's what happens. A whole lot of you're getting on my last nerve happens in that rock tumbler. A whole lot of grinding and banging against one another and conflict and sparks. That's what happens inside that rock tumbler. That's what the rock tumbler was meant to do. Think about this. Now, if a rock had a personality, why did my owner put me in this thing? Every day, bang, 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 bang. Every day, grinding on my nerve. Every day, this is so painful. This is so abrasive. This is so difficult. This is so dry. This is so boring. The rock tumbler was designed to take your gravel self and turn you into your glorious self. It puts two dull rocks in conflict with one another with the sole purpose of their future glory. Now listen, that is a picture of marriage. You were a dull rock when you got married. Let me just say it, right? Two people inside a covenant of marriage and a whole lot of conflict and the grace of Jesus, the spirit of God, in there, but you know what adultery is? See, do you see why there's a problem with adultery? Adultery is a way out of the conflict. 
Adultery is a rock in the tumbler, looking outside of the tumbler and going, it looks peaceful out there. It looks better out there. I need to get out of here. I need to get out of this covenant. This is too stifling. This is too controlling. This is too close. It's closing in on me and I don't like it. I need a way out. And so adultery is a quick way out of the covenant. But everybody knows if the rock gets out of the tumbler, what happens? Its future glory is diminished. Its future glory is forfeited. It was gravel when it went in and it'll be gravel when it comes out. See, this is why it's, adultery is a quick way out. It hijacks the process of God. You look out and you see someone. It looks easy. You see somebody makes you feel wanted again. But to step outside of the covenant is to remove yourself from the very thing that is meant to make you more glorious and more happy. The rock doesn't get polished outside the tumbler. And let me just say this. In fact, sex outside of marriage works in the reverse. Inside the covenant of marriage, it's a place for intimacy. It's a place for permanence. It's a place for vulnerability. It, it creates and maintains and sustains intimacy but outside of the marriage, it does the exact opposite. Romans chapter one tells us that Paul writes, when, when people use sex outside of the covenant of marriage, it changes them in a negative way. It dulls their senses to the glory of God. It darkens their understanding towards the things of God. And it eventually hardens their heart. Now listen, that might sound backwoods to you. That might sound like some serious doomsday talk, but I have personally witnessed it and seen it over and over with my own eyes that sex within marriage is meant to be the catalyst to greater and greater intimacy. But when used outside of marriage, it dulls and even deadens the soul. It harms intimacy, creates wounds, and puts walls around a person's heart where they think that it's impossible to ever be loved and it's impossible to ever love someone. And what happens when you're in this environment and you're fearful and you're anxious and you feel wounded, you become far less glorious than you were intended. You become far less happy than you would have been if you would trust it in God's process of intimacy. Listen, there are no shortcuts to glory. Get out of the rock tumbler. There's no shortcuts. It's in the rock tumbler of marriage where our insecurities and impurities are meant to be polished away by the gospel. And as I close this morning, that's probably one of the most interesting things as you read the Bible that you'll find out about marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that marriage, and he says this, he says marriage is a mega mystery. He says, here's the mega mystery. It's a profound mystery, but if you get into the Greek, it's mega mystery. He says this, marriage and the sexual fidelity of a husband and wife to one another is a sign 
that points to Christ's love for us. Think about that. How did Jesus love us? Well, first off, talk about dull rocks. First off, when he first met us, met us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Well, that wasn't a great first impression. Here's your bride. She's dead. Jesus chose to love a corpse. This is why I always say that God's love for us is a one-way love. Nobody falls in love with a corpse and expects it to meet their emotional needs. Jesus chose to love us when we were spiritually dead to him. But what does he do? Jesus lives the vicarious perfect life for us. He dies the death that we deserve for our many sins. And Jesus then imputes his righteousness to us. His perfect life he puts into us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus literally loves us into life. He loves a corpse into life. And this is what marriage is all about. It's about, it isn't about us getting our needs met, though they, our needs most likely will be met off and on, up and down. It's about laying our lives down for the sake of the other and loving them into life, loving them into the future version of their self, seeing the, Mike, seeing the David in the statue and loving them towards that. Loving them in such a way that they become their future self. That they get polished like the rock in the tumbler and come out far more glorious than they went in. This is marriage to the glory of God and our joy. And this is marriage based in the power of the gospel. That when Jesus Think about this, man. When Jesus was in the garden before his torture and his execution, he wasn't feeling loving towards us. He was sweating drops of blood. Has your marriage come to that? Sweating drops of blood. Capillaries bursting. That's the type of pressure that was upon him to love his bride into life. And what did he do? He didn't look for another way. The devil offered him all that. I'll give you a kingdom, no cross. Jesus has already made that decision. He set his face toward Jerusalem. He set his face toward the cross. He told Peter, put your sword away, Peter. No protecting me this time. I've come to die. I've come to die so that my bride might live. I've come to die so my people might live. Jesus was so motivated by covenantal love towards us and towards the Father. He was that committed to our future redemption, to our future glory. He looked at us dead in our sin and he saw us in heaven and he saw us in the new creation. He saw the creatures that were going to become and he's going to love us enough to lay his life down for us to create us into that. That's what marriage is pointing towards. 
And that's why it's such a violation to commit adultery, to get out, try to get out of that. Adultery preaches a false gospel to the world, a gospel of self-love and not self-sacrificial love. Let me pray. Father, as we come to the table this morning, I pray for the marriages of the people here today. I pray that you would restore them. You would recreate them. You would revive them. You would remake them. You would renew them. You would recommit them to your definition of marriage. And for the singles in the room, I pray that you would allow them to have their views of marriage we reworked by your spirit in the gospel. We don't have to wonder what love looked like. We look to Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is what love looks like. A broken body, sacrifice, death. This is, he took the wine, and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Your blood was poured out moments later in the garden as you were sweating drops of blood and then as your back was ripped open, being beaten unmercifully and then as you hung on the cross. Poured out for our redemption. Poured out for our future glory. Poured out to pour the Spirit into us so that we could have a new power that mortifies our fancy, that kills our sin, that causes us to be faithful to our spouse and love them till death do us part. As we take your body, as we take your blood this morning, would you give us that grace? For those of us who admit that we're adulterers, would you bring confession of sin and repentance of sin? Would we be changed? Do this for your glory and our joy, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.